0: Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. This is a special episode of TBA Now. We're talking with two distinguished internationally respected professors who share their deeply informed experiences of being women in an overwhelmingly male-dominated world of science. These guests are extraordinary, brilliant, compassionate and thoughtful, and they're members of Temple Beth Avodah. Dr. Hazel Siv is Dean of the College of Science and Professor of Biology at Northeastern University. She was a professor of biology at MIT. She's a native of South Africa. Pat DeMore is the Charles Sheppens Professor of Ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School, the Vice Chair for Basic and Translational Research at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Harvard Ophthalmology Center of Excellence. Their resumes are far longer than this. I hope I gave you just a sense of who these extraordinary women are, and I hope you'll listen closely to their stories and their perspectives. I could not be more thrilled, delighted, and honored to have two really very special guests for our uh, TBA Now podcast. I'm talking about Pat Tamar and Hazel Siv, longtime members of Temple Beth of Oda and extraordinary scientists and teachers. So welcome, welcome to both of you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to
0: start by focusing a little bit on, before we get to like, you know, the hardcore STEM stuff, I want to start by saying, and I'll ask you first Hazel, how did you and your family find your way to Temple Beth Avoda?
2: Mm. <laughs> that is a long story, Rabbi. I would say um, the short story is that we moved to Newton, and I was brought up Orthodox, and my husband was brought up very light. Jewish, and we <laughs> wanted somewhere that would be somewhere in between. Um, and I looked around the congregations, and Temple Beth Avada was on my list. And I came over and met with you before the present temple was built. And I thought you seemed both religious, but also reform. And I didn't know much about reform, honestly. It seemed like a good juxtaposition of who you were and how. I thought you would lead the temple because you were pretty new at the time. I think you had yeah. just joined. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I went for it. It seemed like a, a good bet and it certainly has been.
0: Well, that's a good, it's a relief. I'm glad it worked out so well. <laughs> <laughs> Patty, how about you?
1: Well, what? we joined the temple when Rabbi Miller was still rabbi and I was uh, raised as a Roman Catholic, went to Catholic school nuns, the whole story. And growing up, I had already decided that I did not want to bring my child up in the religion that I grew up in. I was not happy with many aspects of that. So we became involved in Temple Beth Avodah because we wanted a home for Elizabeth to have her religion. I met with Rabbi Miller because um, I hadn't converted. And I was thinking of converting, but I wasn't really sure. I ended up converting. I mean, I was very involved right from the start. And then I remember you came along and you did a a Laka contest (laughs) and I won it and I wasn't Jewish. And I'm like, you know, and I was ahead of social, I was doing so many things. I said, you know, I need to put my money where my mouth is, you know? And so I went through the conversion with you. And so it became a home for all of us. And uh, you're still in touch with all of the family members, I know Elizabeth goes to you for advice. It's been a lovely journey, and I thank you so much in the temple for the impact it had on us and our family.
0: And you know, Patty, when you won the latke contest, it stirred up a hornedness, well, at least with one person uh, <laughs> who, who was in the competition. But uh, I still remember, I think you made uh, sweet potato latke.
1: No, they were they were parsnip. I want you to know that that has not gone away. I have a text on my phone from Gene Black from about two weeks ago telling me that he was enjoying his latkes with no parsnips in them. This is 25 years later. At least. (laughs) It's been a a great joy.
0: Well, you know, both of you have uh, raised families here. I wondered, and Hazel, I'm going to ask you to start first on this. You're a kid. Growing up in South Africa, how do you find your way to an interest in the sciences?
2: Well it's interesting you know my family was bifurcated there was half of the family who thought science was just terrible and didn't und- because they didn't understand it and so it was all about history and art and then and language and then there was you know the smaller faction it was actually me and my dad who thought that science was really cool and it was kind of a you know bifurcation of our immediate family. But I was um, quite influenced by my grandmother, Lily, who amazingly graduated with a degree in chemistry from the University of Cape Town right around the beginning of the 20th century. Wow. And it was fascinating because um, she was a very strong woman and she would say that immediately after she got her degree, she married Grandpa Abraham. And that was the last chemistry she did, except in the kitchen, because all doors were closed to her as a married woman. And her daughter, my Aunt Annette, went on to get a degree in chemistry. And Aunt Annette, who, you know, was I was influential on me, finished her degree and wanted to enroll as a PhD candidate. And she wasn't allowed to, because by then she was married, and married women were not allowed to enroll as PhD candidates. Wow, wow. But she was able to become a High school chemistry teacher, which she did her whole career. And then I, and I knew this, you know, and I thought it was pretty cool. And I thought science was fascinating. I, I had to choose between science or history in the seventh grade equivalent at, you know, school. And I chose science. It was like hands down. So I know very little history except what I've learned on Netflix. But, you know, <laughs> Um, but I got a degree in chemistry as well. And, you know, by the time I finished my degree, I was also married and there was nothing that was close to me. I could go on and do anything. And whenever I think back, you know, it's that kind of family history that Mm -hmm. I think was really influential in encouraging me that, um, you know, not only was science really interesting, but, you know, it was something that was open to me as a pathway.
0: And there was a clear precedent in 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 your family totally. for women being able to pursue the sciences. Patty, you're, you're, your your story is a little different.
1: Yes, quite different. I grew up in a working class family in Everett. My father was a firefighter and my mother was a homemaker. With, there were six kids in my family. The only person in the extended family that had been to college is my uncle who was my mother's brother. He went into business very early on. So he was the only person who went to college. He didn't have a ton of impact on me per se. He did impact other members of my family because he was in business. I just, you know, I got interested in science because I had a really good teacher.
0: Mm. Who was the teacher and what grade was it?
1: It was a teacher in high school and her name was Sister Sean. I know she was enthusiastic. For me, enthusiasm for a topic is the utmost thing. If somebody's not enthusiastic about what they're doing, like if I interview a student or something like that, I, I know their heart's not in it. So enthusiasm is important. So I just, um, I didn't have a plan per se. And the reason I can think through this is, I'm sure Hazel has done this, We're, you know, when you're a senior scientist, you're invited to give a lot of talks about your path. How did you get where you went? And mine is, was with totally without a plan because I really didn't have any mentors along the way. I mean, I went to an, a small undergraduate college that had no research. So I didn't even know what research was. I liked science, I had no idea what my options were. So I did lots of different things in the beginning. I went to a field station and collected bugs. I you know, worked on a microscope someplace. The turning point was that I got a a fellowship to do research. It was specifically directed at people at small liberal arts colleges that had no research and it was basically funded by the Herb Chambers of Boston. Their names was Alvin Fuller. Uh And it was like, I think it was $300 for the whole summer. And I got placed at St. Elizabeth's with a hematologist who turfed me to one of his underlings, which is what happens all the time. And it was a woman. She was a MD, not a PhD, but an MD clinical scientist. And she just was very encouraging and fun to work with. And, I took off for that. That was really my start from there. In terms of family, nobody ever suggested that you couldn't do something. We, I think there was no suggestion that we would not go to college. I mean, it was just assumed that you would go to college. My parents paid for us to go to private Catholic high school. So we didn't have to go to Everett high, which at the time was not good. And so we were just expected to, to proceed. And in terms of, um, I had an aunt. It's very funny. This is a different kind of aunt. She was didn't go to college, but she was someone who basically was the first in most things she did. So she worked for like Stop and Shop at that time, and she became mm-hmm. a manager. She was the first woman manager, and mm-hmm. then she was the first woman, you know, Kiwanis person. And she was the first woman. So I think, as I thought about it later on, I realized that that was in front of me all the time she lived in the same house as us downstairs and she just didn't feel any barriers and so it never occurred frankly never occurred to me as i went along until i started to get into programs where there weren't many women that being a woman was going to be unusual in any way because i never got that message at home and it i sort of took me by surprise when i got into graduate school and there were not that many women there now there's probably more women than men in graduate school And then, you know, this rest of the story where both of us have been in situations where there are many fewer women than men, but that's later on. I didn't know that was coming.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, which is probably a saving grace.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably a saving grace. Yeah.
0: How then did you funnel your interest into something that became your initial pursuit?
1: It was basically the happenstance of getting that summer fellowship to work at St. Elizabeth's where I worked with a hematologist who got me interested in blood vessels. And that was, I don't want to say how many years ago, that was many years ago, undergrad. So I was a, was I a graduate. I was an undergraduate at that point. Mm-hmm. And I'm still somewhat working in that same area. It's It all branched off from that. And again, not with any specific plan. I just sort of Moved from one place to the next. So that's literally how it happened. I think probably Hazel would say the same thing. In terms of science, people who like science a lot, I probably could work in almost maybe 80% of areas of science and really like it. There's a couple of things I know I don't want to do. But, you know, when I go to other people's seminars, even today, I always sort of check. And not like, I I could have done that. That's also interesting to me. So I think it's about the curiosity. And then if you get into an area that speaks to you, it doesn't mean that the other ones wouldn't. It just means you got to make a decision at some point and go with it. So Mm. there was no plan. It was a a lot of luck. I'm not going to say there wasn't hard work. There was definitely hard work, but there wasn't any specific goal at the other end. I just sort of kept doing what felt right. Mm -hmm. You're
2: right, Patty. I was thinking how I kind of defaulted into research. It really was not on my list of things to do at all. And I would say going into science was something that seemed interesting, but it wasn't on my list of things really either. It was more there were things I didn't want to do. And so I rejected going to medical school early on which was really stupid. I probably should have gone to medical school, honestly.
0: why, why was that stupid?
2: Because for the reason that I did it, you know i you'd maybe maybe do or don't know this about me. I hate being told what to do. Really. Hate I've it. heard about that. And you know <laughs> yeah. if you're a smart, if you were a smart woman in South Africa at the time, actually what you did was go to medical school. That was a sort of acceptable high end profession to go into and i just hated having that expectation kind of foisted upon me mm. so I you know, said absolutely not. I am absolutely not interested in medical school. Bye. And you know, once you've said it, you've said it. And unless you really, you know, are willing to backtrack and be willing to justify that, it's kind of sad. So I took medical school off the table. So you found totally. your nose in
0: medical school. Totally.
2: Yeah. And, then- and then I had to find something else. <laughs> And you know, there was a there was interest in the family of going and getting a college degree, but actually actually no one really cared. Maybe my aunt Annette cared what the degree was in and that it was in chemistry, but no one else really cared. So there was this kind of searching around what do you do? And I did do some research, like you, Patty, as an undergraduate. And it had to do with developmental biology, which is what I eventually ended up studying. <laughs> yeah. And but actually it wasn't what I wanted to do because I had another plan in mind that, you know, wasn't medical school and wasn't developmental biology. I really care about, you know, the welfare of the plants and animals of the earth. And I thought I would like to get a degree in ecology. And then go into politics and fight, you know, fight for the earth. And actually, in retrospect, that would have been a pretty good plan. You know, I think I would have really gotten into that and and probably done quite well. But I had no idea how to do it. No idea at all. And I had no mentors back then in South Africa. It would, would have been a Pretty unusual path. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to read that out. But at the time, I did have an influential professor who is now an old dear friend, and he gave me a project to work on that had to do with frog embryo development. And I thought it was fascinating. How did these embryos know what to do? How did they know what to become? It was really fascinating. And I could see that one could study this question. And it was a pathway that seemed much clearer than, you know, getting a degree in ecology and then going into politics to fight um, for the planet. So there is a kind of opportunistic notion there.
0: It's interesting. Neither of you kind of had a fire in your bellies about I'm going to be a this or I'm going to do that. It just you kind of you had a propensity for these studies and you kind of rolled with it and no pun intended, it, or, it organically grew as you continued to kind of push the envelope of your own interest in research. And I mean, it also sounds like for both of you that having a, a mentor uh, was a critical component in your development as a scientist. Uh, is is that so for, for each of you?
2: Well, I can answer. I, I would say, you know, my professor Barry Fabian, who is fantastic and I've spoken about him at length he was fantastic because he was really out the box he was a very unusual at the time junior professor and he taught us to think freely much more freely than other professors who I also liked a lot did so I'd suppose he was the mentor more than anyone else but I wouldn't say he was a guide you know he showed me what he was doing and I played with embryos but I would not actually say that I was mentored through life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, it sounds like you wouldn't be a good candidate. For <laughs> that <laughs> might be true, Rabbi. <laughs> <am> <laughs> and how about for you? Well,
1: you know, interesting, because again, like Hazel probably does this, I give a, end up giving a lot of talks on mentoring at this point in my life because I've been there, done that. And mentoring only became actually a buzzword in the 90s. Right now there are programs in place. When you start something you have a mentor okay. for this and a mentor for that and a mentor for this, and they check on their name, you get training and be a mentor and you get training to be a mentee. You know, if we had mentors, it was luck, basically. Like you mm-hmm. ended up working with somebody who you connected with and who had an interest in for in in you in your potential in your career. But there, there wasn't sort of the big buzz around mentoring until really, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. So, I mean, this first woman that I worked for, um, I think she was a mentor of sorts. She was a Roma, well, a little bit of Roma. She wasn't married. She didn't have kids, but she was an interesting woman. And I didn't know that many people in research at all. So to have the first person I interacted with be a woman was, I, I think, nice. At the, that time, it didn't, Matter to me so much because I again didn't realize what I didn't know. I mean, in the beginning, you just don't realize what you don't know. Yeah. So, um, after her and you know, I went to graduate school, you know, your PhD advisor is definitely supposed to be a mentor. He, w- he was an interesting guy in many respects, but you know, was a mentor of sorts. I mean, right now, when we take on students, we have a clear, at least I have, I'm sure, I'm sure Hazel does a clear idea of what that person should learn from me while they're in my group. Like they're not leaving here until they can do this, 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 and this. And that definitely wasn't the case when I went to graduate school. I, I graduated from graduate school with some deficits for sure, because I just hadn't been attended to the way they should be. Mm -hmm. And then as time went along, I had other people who, you know, nurture the first real effective mentor I had was when I got to Harvard, I had, um, I don't know if you know him, Hazel, uh, his name was Ramsey Cotran. And he was, oh, uh, very well known. He was the chief of pathology at the Brigham and he was a very well known mentor. And he actually would give you advice that He was the first real person who would give you tough, even tough love advice. I had a lot of people who just say, Oh, you're doing great. You know, that kind of thing. That's nice, but you know, you're not doing that great. I mean, you know, there's things that can be yeah. fixed. And he was the first person who actually was willing, not willing, I mean, it was his style of of mentoring, to give the tough love feedback of what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, and what it's going to take to move forward. And I actually learned a lot from him because I would probably also be the kind of person that would find it difficult to give people difficult feedback, if you will, or help them correct mid-course. But it's the best thing you can do for somebody. So I think he was probably my best. I had a lot of people I would list as mentors, but he was probably the most effective of all of them. And that was pretty late in my career. I'd already done a postdoc and come back to Harvard. So that was just as I started my academic career. How about you, Hazel? Did you have anybody else?
2: Sorry, sorry, I'm taking no, over. you're doing great.
0: <laughs> that was, you followed my lead. That's-
2: okay. Well, it's interesting. You know, when I was a junior faculty member, I got official mentors and didn't really know what to do with them. And I think they didn't really know what to do with me. And it was, I would say, a real lost opportunity all around. And I learned a lot about lost opportunities because, you know, it could have been much more valuable. And there've, there've been people that I've, looked at and I thought, you know, that I like their style and that I've interacted with. Um, you know, Jerry Fink at the Whitehead Institute is a, a scientist who I think is brilliant, but he's also got a great sense of humor and a kind of a, a sense of balance about um, life, you know. So, I've always enjoyed interacting with him. You know, I was very fortunate because it this also was, you know, as a faculty member, um, as a Graduate student. I also had a, a, a very brilliant lab head who I think is proud of me, but I wouldn't say you know that I was really nurtured at that time. Yeah. And my postdoc advisor, who was also really brilliant, um, definitely didn't nurture. We were kind of there for his entertainment, yes, really. Yeah. And then yeah. He, he passed entertainment, away. Entertainment, entertainment, and labor yeah, mine was more entertainment because there was, you know, I was doing something that no one else in the lab was doing totally. It was totally independent. And oh, he was I really see. interested in it. But you know, i he never even gave a talk on what I did because he told me he doesn't didn't really understand. So I thought that was fine. And he was lovely. But there was, f- I did not get a whole lot from him. I got a sense that science was serious fun. You know, that was what I got, which is probably a, a good insight. And then, you know, so it also, like you, Patty, wasn't until I was a faculty member, you know, like, wow, really? They want to give me a faculty position? You know, yeah. that, that was a real surprise. Um, that, that That I started looking around and actually understanding that there were some people who really were able to do fabulous research i mean absolutely fantastic and i thought boy i never even thought about research anyway i just kind of you know defaulted you didn't ask me about the you know what happened between undergraduate and going to graduate school rabbi but there were years of kind of floating free there and eventually defaulting into doing a phd because it was kind of all i could think of doing mm. you know It's it's as as Patty says. You take a step, and then there's something else appears, and you take another step. Something else appears, and so eventually, when I was in this amazing faculty position, you know, who would have thought I could look around and see these people doing outstanding research? And I tried to watch them and figure out, you know, how they what they did, what their qualities were that made them be. Really, so stunning in their creativity and effectiveness. And, and that's been very interesting. It's bits and pieces, you yeah. know, where you yeah. try to put it together. But I do feel that the mentoring situation is better now than it was when I was oh, junior yeah. and is more deliberate. I think yeah. it was very much lip service. And you, ha- especially, maybe especially as a woman, I was very reluctant to ask questions that I thought I should know. I'm not anymore. I had to, but I had to learn. I had to learn that it's fine not to know. I had to learn that it, there's no stupid question. Now I give lectures on it, but you know, I really had to learn that it's fine to ask anything. And I didn't know at the time. And I think that's part of the reason that the mentoring experience was not so rich. And I do think things are much better now for with regard to mentoring. Yeah.
1: But I also think we were never, it just wasn't. A thought process. You know, there was like now it's a, literally a thought process. It's like you can take classes and being a mentor. Totally. And you can take classes in being a mentee. And if I look back, I probably wasn't that great a mentee. When I think of things, advice I give students, I didn't do most of the stuff that I tell them now that they should be doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but That's nobody sometimes. told me. And <laughs> right. you know,
1: and it's everywhere now. It's not just science. Yes. Mentoring is a big thing. And I I think it's a fantastic thing. I consider it basically learn from my mistakes. See what I did right, but more than that, learn from my mistakes. Don't make those mistakes again. That's the most time I can save somebody.
0: Well, I wonder. I wonder if part of this change in the uh, practice of mentorship has to do with women being more involved in higher education altogether, because I think. The classic uh, male-dominated thought about success uh, in any field, but I I would say maybe in academia more than almost, and, and medicine, would essentially be, I had to work really hard. I had to make all these sacrifices. I had to bump into all these edges. That's part of the deal. You have to tough it out. No one's no one's going to be there to nurture you. It's all about you figuring out what you need to do for you. And I think I've always felt that that kind of stiff upper lip stuff is predominantly about sort of a male sense of uh, hierarchy and who works the hardest and, and shows it the least. That nurturing someone's intellect that helping someone who's good become great is something that has not been around much until the past, as you're suggesting, I guess it's about, what, 25 years where uh, it's finally the notion of actually uh, not making someone break uh, when they're working, but actually to help them find their way is a better method of getting the best out of a human being.
1: No, you know what? I think you're right. But the other interesting piece of it is there was a lot of mentoring in place for men because it's what we all call the old boys club. And they had, you know, interactions outside. Say, I'm going to say the lab. They were fostering each other's career. It's the challenge had been when women got inserted into it. And I think actually now that I think of it, most of the reason that I got the benefit of mentoring is that Harvard instituted a program where women, junior women had to have sort of career conferences with their department chair once a year because Harvard in particular did so crappy with women. You know, I mean, Hopkins graduated their first woman in like 1898. Harvard graduated their first from medical school in 1948. Mm. So they got a lot of grief from that for that and have, you know, not been a, a particularly welcoming place to women for a long time. There's all kinds of stories about that. So I think part of the need for mentoring and why it had to get formalized was because there was such inequity between the genders. I think, you know, men had their own system in place. And then when women came along, how does a man mentor a woman? I don't know, Hazel. Do you think that there's truth to that?
2: Yes, I think I think you are absolutely on. I think it's a bit of a myth that you know women are the great nurturer mentors, and that you know that's why we have mentoring now. I think men mentor one another out the wazoo. Totally, it is very tight, and you know you can see it today now that mentors for male faculty. I think still are less kind of relevant, they, they're relevant, but they're less relevant than um, mentors for, for women faculty, because there is male clubbiness. I mean, it is absolutely true, it's still true. So I think it's, yes, I think him trying to make sure that the women who were hired actually were successful is kind of part of the deal. And it's in the beginning, it's still pretty lonely in many fields (laughs) to be a woman. In the beginning, it was totally lonely.
0: Say more about that.
2: Well, I think you had to be a certain type of person to do really well. And it's complicated. I think being a woman in a male- Largely male profession is incredibly complicated. There was one professor at MIT that I really admired, Millie Dresselhaus, who was a physicist, and she's passed now. And she was there long, long ago. And, you know, she managed to be a Become a really top physicist, but she kind of was one of these do it all. You know, she had a family, and she was very loving, and she was a top physicist. And I would look at her and try to figure out who she was. Um, mm-hmm. And she was outspoken, but she was really the exception. You know, it was tough to be kind of a lonely, a lonely figure there. And I would, th- and I, I would say. It's a bit of a myth that women band together to look after one another. I think that that's absolutely not true with regard to mentoring at all. So there's not a you know a good old girls club that matches the boys club. There really isn't, and uh, you know that I think is a challenge. It's still a challenge, and it's one, you know that is. Certainly was recognized. Um, it's been recognized in reports and things. So I think your question's complicated, and your supposition's very interesting, Rabbi. But I think the actual framework may be a but complex.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I think for the the old boys club picture, yeah, you know, I don't think about that as mentoring, you know, as opposed to supporting a patriarchy. You know what I mean? I I, I think um, the idea was less about developing another person as opposed to covering for them or for, uh, ha- I don't know. I, 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 think of mentoring maybe because now it is indeed this,
1: this whole field.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and I don't like, Oh, if it's nurturing, it has to be women. I don't want to go in there either, but I, I, I am suggesting the idea that um, there be a, a formal structure for uh, developing one's repertoire as a scientist or as a historian, that there is in fact um, something about that that requires a a kind of horizontal way of looking at the world that men typically aren't really good at. But at least that's one old man's perspective. Um, I'd like to segue in from what you were both just talking about to a little bit more of the brass tacks of what it was like for you going into this really male-dominated world and having to, and I don't know if part of the experience was elbowing your way to the table, if a room was made for you gladly, uh, what kind of obstacles you had to contend with and how tough was it for you? Patty? why don't you start with that?
1: So, I think I had the benefit of being clueless initially. I just didn't have an idea of sort of being discriminated against. And there was no intentional education about it. So when I look back at experiences that I had in graduate school, ugh, could call the police probably. But, you know, at the time I was like, oh, you know, you just didn't know you were being, I mean, it wasn't abused. It wasn't physically abused. But just d- totally disrespected in a way. Not the lab I was in, but by, it just doesn't matter. The upshot was I didn't even recognize it when it was happening because I was so clueless. When I went to my postdoc, I think it was fine. I had a couple of experiences there that were unsettling in terms of being discriminated against, clearly. But when I got to Harvard, I really realized what the issue was. Then it really smacked me in the face. When I, I don't know about you, Hazel, when I got there as an assistant professor, there were the faculty was I don't know I forget how many faculty were there were maybe 190 tenured professors when I got there I don't know what the number is now four were women and none of them had kids no actually one had kid. one had children the other three weren't even married it didn't come across as they had as you pointed out for the person you admired so much a very balanced life and you know four women out of you know, I think it was like 1%, basically. And I actually remember going to a talk about getting promoted at Harvard. So saw as an assistant professor. And the person basically said, if you don't have a pedigree, like if you haven't gone through Ivy League, don't think you're ever going to make it here. And I didn't go. I mean, I was a working class kid. I went to a small liberal arts school. I mean, I, I didn't have the pedigree. And I was so infuriated. I think that was the first time I was livid. I was like, oh, really, you know, like, because my parents, you know, I don't, I'm not a legacy person at Harvard. Now I can't succeed here. So I think at that point, that was a turning point for me. I really made up my mind that I was going to like stay there and I was going to succeed because I was really pissed. I think that's the first time I was really angry when I really realized. And so it was a combination of this pedigree comment that he made, plus the inherent discrimination, the few women that were around really sort of set me on my, on my edge.
0: Do you feel like you worked harder because of that?
1: Uh, you know, People work really hard. Um, I think everybody works pretty hard. I think I worked harder with less a sense of, se- I worked probably equally as hard as everybody else, but with less a sense of security than a man who might've been working hard could have felt like, oh yeah, he was on his way. He just had to get this paper and this mm-hmm. grant and then he'd be fine. I never felt that until, you know, I actually succeeded. I'm working hard. I'm not sure if I had to work harder. The other, my other issue too was I look young. So when I was an associate professor, I looked probably like I was a graduate student. I had a really hard time having people take me seriously to get myself to be on committees or to be chairs of things and stuff like that. And that was disturbing because I would see other men that I had grew up in the system with postdocs and stuff. And they're on heading this committee. I'd be in the chair of that. And I didn't get that initially. I just, I didn't know if it was how I looked or how I presented myself, but I would always have people say, oh yeah, I didn't know you were, I I thought you were, you know, like this I I remember going to um, student recruitments for uh, PhD weekends. You know, you do those Hazel at MIT also, and having people ask me early on, not recently, believe me, not recently, whether I was a student or a faculty. Yeah. So I think age discrimination, how I looked, so many, it comes in so many forms, interestingly, when you think about it. I had not thought out loud about it like this, but it comes in many forms, things that you have to compensate
2: for. How about you, Hazel? Oh, gosh, we could talk for the rest of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. You know, I was one of two women in my undergraduate chemistry class. There were 300 men because there was all the chemical engineers and the chemists and it was me and another woman so you know I got really good at fighting off men and that you know that was kind of how I got through undergrad and it was fine you know and when I went to graduate school, it was such a total shock to come to the United States and to go to graduate school and to actually understand what graduate school was. <laughs> you know, all I did was work. I didn't think about anything else. I thought, geez, why? And they, it was paid for me. I thought, whoa, you know, I really <laughs> better work. So I worked. I didn't think about anything else. It wasn't until I was a postdoc that, you know, the penny started to drop. I was one of two women in the postdoc lab of about I don't know how many there were maybe fifteen postdocs I don't think there there was one graduate student, and that was the time I realized that people didn't listen to me, and unfortunately my boyfriend was in the same lab which was a probably a you know really bad situation but may not have actually made it that much worse, but I did realize that people did not listen to me, mm. and. That and that that was one of my getting angry incidents. And we were sitting in a group meeting one day, and I made a comment about someone's research, and I thought it was a pretty good comment. And you know, no one sort of responded. The meeting just carried on, and then a male postdoc, literally five minutes later, said exactly the same thing, and the meeting stopped, and everyone addressed what he was saying, and I was so. Angry. We were all sitting on the floor because there were no chairs. It was a little office. We were all sitting on the floor and there were slides projected. I stood up and I said, Folks, or whatever I said, I want to tell you something. What Robert just said to you that you all listened to with so much interest is exactly what I said to you five minutes before. And, you know, I don't have a little voice. I actually have a pretty loud voice. I said, I said it and you heard and you ignored what I said. I said, that is so insulting. I was so angry. Good for you. But you know, what was kind of sad was that they heard that and they heard, oh, she's angry, but it didn't really change anything. It didn't make them listen to me more next time. Mm -hmm. I had to find other strategies to do that. In fact, I actually went on to get the best job out of anyone else in that lab, just TBH. So, you know, hooray for me. But And I did the most original work. It was just me and I kind of made up the field all by myself there. I had no advisor, no nothing. I just did it. But that made me angry. And then when I was looking for a job, sort of at the same time as my husband, then husband, and you know, there were depo- there was one department chair, we were both offered a job, and the department chair called up and spoke to him about both of our jobs. And mm. I just grabbed the phone and I just let him have it. And you know and I said I'm not going to that place I couldn't possibly go to your university where you treat me a second best but still so so there were things Patty like you I got really angry in a couple of instances mm-hmm. But I don't think it makes that much difference, and that is what's disturbing. It was disturbing then, and I think it still is in many ways. In fact, I was—I just pulled out something I wrote for my college about, you know, being a woman in science. And there's a comment from um, Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court justice, as to how the court had changed practices because um, the women justices were not being listened to in the same way as the male justices and they'd actually changed practices on the supreme court so that they, people had to have the same amount of time to speak and you weren't allowed to interrupt one another this was just in the post you know earlier this last year in 2021 mm-hmm. so I think that kind of thing of not being listened to, if you're a woman, not being taken seriously, you know, unfortunately hasn't gone away. And I certainly have experienced it over and over and over again.
1: Is it less now that you're a senior person? And like, when did it, did it change at any point in your career that you can remember?
2: Well, you know, I have a title of dean now. So in some circumstances, people have to listen to me. I changed myself. You know, I stopped being so smiley, which I think has its own problems, (laughs) honestly. And that maybe helped a little bit. I I think there's strategies that help a bit. I think people listen to me now more than they used to. But I still see that, you know, when when you ask around the, the women, junior women faculty, the graduate students, they still talk about not being listened to. And then, Patty, you know, apropos your point of going to Harvard and the women there not having families and, you know, how you're viewed, I would say I had male colleagues who kind of viewed me as a mother first and someone who maybe worked part time on Wednesday afternoons at MIT. And that was the kind of landscape I had a deal with. I had one male colleague who would always answer say to me, and how is your brood? That is how he would any greeting to me, not how's your semester going, what's new in your lab, what you're teaching, you know, something about actually the work. How is your brood? And I wouldn't know exactly how to answer. So I didn't want to answer, so I'd be non-committal. This went on for years. When I became I think I I waited till I became full professor. I said to him, look, for years, you've been opening every conversation by asking me about my family. Let me enlighten you. When you want to have a conversation with a colleague, you can ask what's new in the lab, how's your semester going, what you're teaching, Those are all great openers. Asking someone repeatedly about their family is actually disrespectful. Do you know, he almost did not speak to me again at all after that. He was so either angry or insulted or probably, you know, just confused. He almost never spoke to me again for the next, oh, 15 years. Wow. Wow. And, you know, that was, I, I would say that was an extreme example, but. It's absolutely true. To be taken seriously as a woman is a lot harder than as a man. And it is very, very wearing, even today, for the women coming through.
1: I remember when I was pregnant, I was at Children's at the time. And people still talk about this now. The women who I work with talk about how I worked till the day I went into labor. I was sitting in the tissue culture hood doing work and then went home and went into labor. And years after that, God, Folkman, God bless him, would say, oh, you know, do it Pat did. She took a month off before she... Because you need to rest and you need to get ready. She took a month off. I'm like, where did he get that? And God rested so he's not around, but people would write to me. He said it again. He's saying how you <laughs> took a month off.
2: I'm like, oh, damn. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm wondering
0: given your experience and, and you know, you are esteemed figures in the world in which you operate. And my guess is, given your roles, that it would be not unusual uh, for you to be giving advice to women who are entering the sciences. What are a couple of pointers that you think are really significant? Patty, how about from you?
1: I agree with Hazel. There's a very subtle where you present yourself in meetings. And I I tell people to make sure that what you're going to say, you say it succinctly, you say it in a confident tone of voice. There's a lot written about how women talk and they pitch their voice up at the end. So it sounds like a question or women apologize a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I want to say this. No, you're not sorry. And it's just built in to the way women function. So there's a lot of subtleties about the way women present themselves that I don't, I don't say it's the reason that we're not listened to, but it can't help. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I I've gone to a couple of these. I don't know if they're not mentoring things, but they're career development. I've gone in thinking, Oh, I have nothing to learn here. I know all this stuff. I've been here, done that. And then I don't apologize in Mm -hmm. an email. Don't, say things in a certain statement, women tend to communicate in a very different, less certain way. And I think that doesn't help getting incorporated into the big picture or the men's club. I don't know. But and I realized I did some, I do some of it myself. I actually write emails differently now.
2: Hmm. I tell you something, Patty. The most unpopular talk I ever gave, I did it twice and then I realized, was titled The Seriousness of Science and Why Women Shouldn't Smile. And it was exactly to try to get across that, you know, if you come across soft and sweet and tentative, that people aren't going to listen to you. And you really should work on your confidence and your presentation. The audiences hated it. They hated me for it. They I can't even tell you how much they hated me. And they were actually right because oh. it puts the onus on women to be more like men rather than on men to listen more carefully to women. And they were exactly right. It shouldn't be, you know, on women to be more masculine. It can help for sure, as you and I know, but actually, the sort of tenet that it's up to women to kind of get with it and to come across as assertive and, you know, overconfident is something that really troubles. More junior women, and I think they're exactly right. That really, it's a kind of two-way street, and the men have to learn to listen more carefully. It's it's so, but it's so interesting because how do you actually make people listen more carefully? I, this is a very, I think, this is really important. And I've had discussions with my daughters about this, and with you know, people in in science um, about this. And I I think it's exactly true that. Trying to masculinize women, it's certainly not the most popular way to view how to be respected. No, I I
1: definitely agree with that. I agree. But I I also agree that women do tend to apologize. Totally. And that's a piece of it that needs to go. Regardless of gender, there's no reason to be apologizing that you have something to say. So it's, it's both of those. yeah.
2: Yeah, but it's so complicated because when you look at men presenting themselves, they generally have to go through much less of this kind of self-assessment and self-evaluation to figure out whether people are listening to them. Sure. And I think that that's what's very difficult. And When I did a report when I was at MIT on the status of women faculty there, I mean, these like off the charts, fabulous women faculty, one came out with the notion of an accepted personality and that there's an accepted personality and it's a very fine line that you tread as a woman. And that's just not true for men. The accepted personality is not a kind of a fine line you tread. It's just this broad kind of swath that you can meander along. And I think that that's the difference. There's a a pressure on women to somehow have this accepted personality, and it's much broader for men.
0: You have access to really the best and the brightest uh, that uh, come to study with you, undergrad, postgrad, doc, -doc, postdoc, all different levels. And Um, women increasingly are there amongst uh, uh, your students, your uh, research assistants, the people that are um, doing the work. How do you think their professional lives will be different than yours?
1: Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that in some respects, you can tell that not enough has changed because women are the uh, women in the workforce in general, and in science, not in particular, but in addition, their careers have been victims of COVID. When it came time to be, you know, sharing the work at home or carrying the weight, it still has ended up being primarily the women. And I don't know what the number is. How many women have left the workforce? And I don't know if we have a number of how many women have left science. I know there've been less productive. They've gotten less papers out. There've been articles in the sciences about the fact that it turned out COVID was great for some people. They wrote a ton of grants and they wrote a lot of papers. It's less among women. Because why? Because they were doing the homeschooling and everything else.
2: We did a survey at Northeastern and it was stunning how many more women were affected or reported that they were negatively affected by COVID than men. It was you know, maybe double the number of women were affected by COVID than men on the faculty. It was huge. It's really had a huge effect, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's sort of a, I think that's a spotlight yeah. on where we are right now. So for instance, there's lots of, I mean, the medical school classes and the graduate school classes are at least 50% women, Yeah. but that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. So, you know, there'll be maybe a few or less instructors and then less assistant professors and then even less associate professors. And I'm and that's also a lot of people are going into biotech and industry, but they're not doing much better there. They can get a job there, but they're not in leadership positions. I they have mm-hmm. some number, like there's two CEOs of big companies. And I don't know of any women who are in upper, upper, upper management in biotech companies. I know there was one, somebody at Editas for a while, she left, I don't know what the story was there, but there's not a lot of, people can get in those jobs, but they're not rising to leadership positions. And the same, frankly, is still happening. There's more women professors and, you know, the line is not as dreary as it used to be, but it's, it's still way below parity.
0: So this gender issue has not even vaguely gone away.
2: No. No. So I, so I could say a couple of things. I firstly would like to just remind myself of my grandma Lily, you know, who couldn't do anything being a yeah. woman after her undergraduate degree. You know, that that door was just shut. And whenever I feel discouraged, I think back to Grandma Lily and how amazed she would be as to what women can do today. You know, so that's my sort of little circle of encouragement that I just keep um, going back to whenever things get discouraging. I think it's fascinating because, you know, in a way, things have not changed that much over the last several decades and women are still disproportionately leaving science or as you say going into biotech which is a disaster in terms of actually um, being becoming a leader it's a little better but it's still a disaster and I th- actually think that we're at the point where for women to um, do better in academia and for also certain other underrepresented groups I think academia has to really change and i will just say that that is why I moved to Northeastern to see if we could do something to change academia a bit, so that it would be less archaic than it still is. Because honestly, there are parts of the academy which have not changed probably since the 12th century. So th- th- there are things you know we can think about. Um, the in. Many fields of science, you know, you do a PhD and then you do this postdoctoral period, which can go on for a decade, and then maybe if you do well you get a job in academia. It's like debilitating. It's right at the time where if you want children you would be having them and it's just it's just this uncertain kind of cloud of nothingness that has become the standard for science as an entry point into faculty positions. So, we are trying to get rid of it and hiring people right out of the PhD into professor positions and then doing some extra stuff to give them some time to ramp up. And I'm hoping that in certain fields, this will discourage women who think, you know, academia, faculty position is kind of cool, but they just don't want this cloud of the postdoc to be following them around, that they'll think, oh, okay, here's a much shorter cut to somewhere where I want to go. There's also this sense in academia and I think both Patty and I have alluded to it, of this kind of loneliness, you know? You're the lonely woman, you're the lonely thing, you do your own research, it's your own personal lonely road. And in fact, that's how um, research is often assessed. But that's not actually how research is done nowadays. It's really collaborative. I I can't remember the last time I published a paper that didn't have a whole bunch of authors and collaborators. But when we assess people for promotion in academia, it's on this kind of lonely road. What's your personal track? So, You know, we're trying to get rid of that to assess for promotion on the basis of collaboration and indeed to bring people into collaborations so that the whole landscape of research changes, that it becomes more collaborative right from the outset, that the assessment of the candidate is based on collaboration, not based on the kind of lonely, you know, um, single investigator track that um I was certainly assessed on and that we can bring in women and other minority groups without this kind of very long road of training that has been the gold standard and so who knows you know if this will help but I'm thinking that maybe we've gone as far as we can go in promoting women in science kind of the old way Mm-hmm. And and maybe we need something a bit more radical for the path forward. So we'll see. It's early days yet, and and those are some experiments that I'm really interested in trying. And, and we'll see if it you know they go somewhere.
0: We could go on for. I have another twenty questions, which clearly uh, <laughs> it might be slightly beyond the scope uh, of what we have um, to discuss. So what I I wanted to give each of you time to do is. Um, Hazel, let me start with you. What are you working on right now?
2: I work on developmental biology still. And I actually write, I've worked on a lot of things in my life. Let me just say rabbi. That is one of the freedoms I took. I've worked on a number of things and they've all been fascinating. The things that I'm working on right now um, are quite interesting. One is a project that I almost started as an undergraduate and I've kept going. And it's true. It is true. It's so interesting. The question is still there, huh? (laughs) Well, it was sort of the question. It's the same region of the embryo. It's a region of the embryo that forms the mouth and the face. And it turns out that this region of the embryo that gives rise to the mouth. Also controls the size of the brain and it controls the development of the whole facial skeleton and it's called the extreme anterior domain and it's kind of a signature project from my lab and it's really interesting and we're in the direction I hope maybe of um, therapeutics for microcephaly um, one mm. of these one of these years and then the other reason the other region um, has to do with brain disorders or the other um, area has to do with brain disorders and the those that are during the development of the embryo and the brain, and we've been focusing on one particular disorder and have discovered th- that's very a very prevalent, very severe disorder, and we've discovered that the lipid content, the fat content of the brain is severely disrupted in cells from people who are affected with this disorder. And I've always used frogs and fish as model organisms, and we can show this is true in fish as well. The fish brain has a totally uh, messed up lipid spectrum. And so we're working on testing whether lipid supplementation with specially modified lipids can make the fish better and can be pioneer therapeutics for people who are affected with this particular disorder. So it's all about developmental biology, especially of the brain and also the facial region.
0: This is all in addition to being the dean of uh, the College of Science totally which might take a couple hours a week uh, of, of your time as well <laughs>
1: yeah
0: <laughs> but you but but uh, for you your research is still essential to your work
2: I went to a lot of trouble to move my lab from MIT to Northeastern, and I'm really glad I did. It was such a huge effort. Patty, I haven't done it since I was junior, and was it a lot of effort. But yeah, it's fascinating. You know, Research is really, it's probably the most interesting thing. It's one of the most difficult things you can do, but it's also so interesting because it's new. It's where you can really Find yeah. out new things in ways that are very difficult in other aspects of life.
1: Plus, would you agree, Hazel, that it's, it adds to your understanding and empathy as a mentor and a leader of the department if you're still doing the research yourself?
2: 100%.
1: You've been in it long enough. I don't think you're going to forget but I think it gives an extra kind of credibility to, to me or you as a leader, if you're actually doing the work that the people are trying to do because you have to write grants. And it's why, inter- this is a great analogy. It's why I think that Rabbi, as a dad and a husband, is able to be such a, a wonderful role model and give such great advice because he's been there you know, he's been there and done that. That's coming from somebody who grew up in a Catholic church where I'm going to take advice from somebody who's never been there. Like, really? So yeah, you get a credibility plus you have a deeper understanding of, of what people are going through. Totally. And I think it makes, it totally makes you far more credible and, um, and empathetic if you're doing Mm. that. So, and I just, uh, also, I don't think I would want to just do administration and not do research. I'm not sure I could, because I'm I'm in the same boat as as uh, I don't know how much time you spend on administration, and I actually hate to call it administration because I think I have an an image that people picture us there just like moving papers around. It, it's not that I, I consider it to be mentoring, frankly. I mean that's major. That's our major job is sort of making research happen, or teaching. In your case, I don't do that much teaching, and um, sort of helping people succeed.
0: In addition to your spending the time on that, what what are you working on right now, Patty?
1: So um, I trained as a cell biologist and a vascular biologist. I'm interested in all aspects of the vasculature. Worked on many aspects of it, some development, but in uh, what the work I'm doing right now is what people would call very tra- translational, meaning you know we undertake the projects we take with a direct intention, if you will, of. Developing an interventional therapeutic. I'm working on diseases of the eye. I'm at eye research institute that involve blood vessels. The interesting thing about blood vessels is you could work in any system because every system has blood vessels in it. So that gave me a lot of flexibility. I work on uh, d- diseases like macular degeneration, mostly macular degeneration at this point. Um, two forms of macular degeneration one involves growth of blood vessels, and one basically involves their atrophy, they're dying. So they give it the same name. One is wet and one is dry. So I was luckily a uh, part of a group that many years ago did sort of the basic science aspect of how people are treated now for wet macular degeneration. If you've ever heard of somebody getting an injection in their eye Mm -hmm. for diabetic retinopathy or macular degeneration, that's work that me and many other people did many years ago. And then Genentech picked it up and turned it into a therapeutic. None of us are rich because of that, but that's okay. Too bad. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, So now we're trying to figure out the dry form. Like, why does this happen? Because it can be devastating. It causes central blindness, basically. So the macular is the part of the eye that's responsible for seeing fine details and faces. So when people get wet or dry, they lose their central vision. They can have a lot of peripheral vision and they can get trained to use it, but they lose their central vision and they can be basically legally blind. So we're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out the mechanisms of those diseases. Once you know what the mechanisms are, that you theoretically will have targets that you can intervene with for treatments.
0: Both of you uh, in your respective fields do work, do research in fields that have such potential to uh, change the lives of people, a a bridge, uh, into healing, which is extraordinary, and I think emblematic of your characters and your drive. I, I want to say I've had the great joy of knowing you for a long time, and I've never not been, you know, impressed and delighted to spend time with you. Uh, but I, I after uh, today and this conversation, I feel even more blessed uh, to know you and to count you as members of this Temple Beth Avodah family because um, you bring so much to the world uh, with an open-hearted, smart, uh, um, unorthodox approach to everything, uh, not just uh, the sciences, but to life itself. And um, I want to thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Um, Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Hazel.
2: Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. It's a pleasure, honor to be part of Beth of Adair. Thank you for being our rabbi. Thank you for the invitation. You're
1: welcome. Yeah, now Hazel and I are going to, you can't go out for a drink anymore. You can come over here and we can continue the <laughs> conversation, Hazel.
2: Totally, and uh, we can name names. Penny. Yeah, we can name names.
0: <laughs> the small world of academia. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Find all of our episodes on bethavodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonconnigy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman.